All right, good morning. Uh, if you are with the threes and fours class, you guys are dismissed to your class now. Uh, for the rest of us, if you have your Bible, let me invite you to open with me to the Gospel of Mark. And uh, we will be in chapter 13. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 13. If you need a Bible, just slip up your hand. We've got extras in the back. Uh, Mr. Zach Penwell is, will come down the aisle and give you one. Mark chapter 13. You may want a Bible in front of you. Uh, you may want to be able to look at the words as we are uh, working through them because the text that we turn ourselves to is one of the most controversial texts in the whole Gospel of Mark, uh, if not uh, the Bible. We are talking about today uh, the end of the world. That's exciting, isn't it? Um, yeah, yeah, it was really good for me coming home from youth camp after preaching all week and sleeping not all week, and then starting yesterday and then going, man, we are in the end of the world today. But it's a text that is inspired by God for many reasons. We are meant, as God's people, we are meant to think about the end of the world because thinking about the inner world, directing our attention to it, even if we don't understand all of its inner workings, is meant to do something in us and for us. It's meant to prepare us for something. In Mark chapter 13, uh, we are in the middle of what is the largest collected body of Jesus. Jesus is teaching in the Gospel of Mark, and he's preparing his disciples for what life's going to be like post uh, resurrection and ascension. He's preparing them for what ministry is going to be like. And one of the difficulties of this text is the way in which Jesus speaks about real historical events that are going to happen in their lifetime, and the way in which he sort of weaves back and forth from the historical events to events that are very obviously something far bigger, something uh, global, something cataclysmic. At this point in the story, Jesus is making his way to the day of his crucifixion. We're just two days away uh, from his betrayal and his arrest, and thus he begins to prepare them for what will happen. Verses 1 through 3, we saw Jesus teaching them that the temple that they were leaving was going to be destroyed one day. The destruction of the temple, which would occur just 40 years later within their lifetimes. In verse 4 through 13, Jesus prepares them for what life will look like serving him in a hostile world. We saw five things that Jesus wanted them to expect if they were going to follow him. He wanted them to expect false teachers, to be prepared for false teachers. He wanted them to expect a hostile world, complete with wars and rumors of wars and earthquakes and famines and all the rest. He wanted them to expect persecution, both from the government, from the people who claim to be religious, and from their own family members. He wanted them to expect spiritual empowerment, that they wouldn't be alone in this difficult season, but that God would give them the words to say when they needed to say them. And number five, he wanted them to expect endurance. The one who would endure to the end would be saved. Now, the language in Mark chapter 13 shifts. Shifts from what they should expect in these days to what the disciples should expect in those days. And Jesus begins to discuss not just what the disciples will experience in their lives, but what God's people will experience as the end of the world draws nearer 
and nearer. Now let me warn you on the front end, if you came here this morning for me to answer all of your questions, you will be disappointed. You will likely be left with more questions than answers, and you really need to see this week and next week as two parts of the same sermon, because we just couldn't fit it all in. And so we'll be sort of introducing some ideas about the end of the world today, but then next Sunday we'll be really asking the question, okay, what does this mean for us now? Because the point of Mark chapter 13 is not to provide the disciples with answers to the questions that they have. In fact, the only question they ask is, when is this going to happen? And then Jesus says, essentially, I'm not going to tell you, you're never going to know. That answer is not available to you, the when-ness. But rather, the intention of the whole chapter is not when it's going to happen or for you to understand all the details of how it's going to happen. The intention of the whole chapter is that you pre be prepared to be faithful today and tomorrow and next week until the end comes, so that when the end comes, you will not regret a life wasted. So with that in mind, let's read uh, verses 14 through 23, and then let's pray for understanding. Verse 14. Jesus says, but when you see the abomination of desolation, Standing where he ought not to be, and then Mark gives you a little antidote here, a little, little addition. Let the reader understand. <laughs> then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who's on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house to take anything out. Let the one who's in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infant in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days, there will be such a tribulation as, not, as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved for the sake of the elect whom he chose. He shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. All right, let's, let's pray together. Father, we come to this text, and I must confess, um, and I, I was bewildered by many of the things in this text, and so God, I, I just pray for your grace now, as I prayed for your grace in my study, help me to say true things um, from your word. And Father, we pray that, that you would do in our hearts, uh, from this passage of scripture, what you intended this passage of scripture to accomplish for the last 2,000 years. And what you intend to accomplish it for the next however many years until your return, God. And so I pray, equip us now with true things that will help us to live more faithful lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So there's a word in verse 14 that signals to the reader that Jesus is prophesying about something very big. 
Now, Mark gives an editorial note that the reader should understand. I mean, he, he basically adds, you need to pay attention to this, reader. But beyond Mark's editorial note, let the reader understand, there's a phrase which would have packed a big punch for anybody that was familiar with the Old Testament prophets. It's the phrase, abomination of desolation. Abomination of desolation. Now, unfortunately, when you hear that word, you think Kirk Cameron and Left Behind, the movie, right? The people in the Bible heard that word, and they thought Daniel, the prophet. The word abomination means something detestable, something appropriately abhorred. It is, uh, it or he is an abomination that makes desolate, or it brings destruction. It's a word pair that appears several times in the prophecies of Daniel. In fact, Matthew, in Matthew 24, verse 15, explicitly says this. Matthew 24, verse 15 says, when you see the abomination of desolation, the person who is detestable, who brings destruction, essentially, spoken of by the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Now, in order to get what in the world Jesus is talking about, we need to get at what in the world Daniel's talking about and how the disciples would have understood that term and that prophecy from Daniel. And we just started and we're already diving deep into this thing. Pray that God will help you understand as we work through this and see why this even matters. The book of Daniel is a book that is very much about the kingdom of man which has set itself up as an affront against the kingdom of God. Now, it's a book about kings like Nebuchadnezzar and his son uh, Balthazar, their, their arrogance, their desire to be worshipped as king of kings, and their desire to be set up as the divine one whom should be worshipped. And Daniel is living in exile under these kings, persevering, trying to be faithful under their rule. Now, we're familiar, mostly, like anybody who ever wants to do a study of Daniel, they like do like the first five or six chapters, and they're like, Daniel in the lion's den, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and then they just close it down around chapter seven. They're like, all right, that's all we need to know, because from that point forward, things transition. We're all familiar with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refusing to bow at the king's command, being thrown into a fiery furnace, yet protected by God so that everyone would see who the true king is. We know the story of Daniel being thrown into a lion's den at the king's command because Daniel refuses to stop praying to the one true God, and Daniel's preserved from the lion so everyone would see who the true king is. Daniel is a story about kingdom of God citizens remaining faithful even in the midst of the most hostile kingdoms of men. And later in the book, after you see these examples, these shining sort of examples of, of men standing for the kingdom of God in the midst of wicked kings, God begins to, begins to speak to Daniel in visions. He begins to show Daniel things Many things that Daniel doesn't even really understand. And in these visions, Daniel sees symbolic beasts representing very real, historical, powerful kingdoms. 
I mean, Daniel explicitly says that some of the beasts represent the Persian Empire or the Greek Empire. Each vision depicting kingdoms by grotesque, ugly, nasty, violent beasts, which God would ultimately destroy. Now, tucked away in Daniel, as it talks about these kingdoms of men rising and falling and rising and falling, it is prophesied that one of those beastly kingdoms will, in fact, set up an abomination, detestable something, in the temple itself, and it will bring destruction. The place where God should be worshipped, one of these abominable beasts, will, will set up something to be worshipped in the temple. Daniel 11, verse 31. Daniel 11, verse 31. Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress and shall take away the regular burnt offering and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. So this prophecy states that there would be an evil kingdom with an evil king who would come to destroy Israel's place of worship, but not before they set up some sort of detestable something to be worshipped in the temple and then brought destruction. So most Jews, by Jesus' day, including the disciples, would have actually understood Daniel chapter 11 to have already been fulfilled. They would have understood this to have happened historically. So the same phrase actually shows up in a book that we do not believe is inspired by God, but a historical book, 1 Maccabees chapter 1, verse 54, and it describes the action of a Syrian general named Antiochus, or, and I said it right earlier, Austin, help me out, we said it, Antiochus, not Antiochus, Antiochus, either way, he's not around to correct me, Antiochus, right? So in 168 BC, all right, almost 200 years before Jesus' arrival, but after this prophecy, 168 BC, Antiochus erected an altar to Zeus on the altar of burnt offering in the temple. He invades the people of God, invades Jerusalem, goes straight into the temple, sets up an altar to Zeus in the place where the one true God should be worshipped. And then get this, he sacrifices pigs, the unclean animal to the Jews, symbolizing sin, and he spreads pig bloods, blood and pig parts in the temple all over the surfaces. And he bans any offering to Israel's God. Now that sounds a whole lot like an abomination that brings desolation. To say the least, this enraged the Jews so much that it actually is what led to what's known as the Maccabean Revolt and uh, a century of political self-rule before Roman occupation. That was the moment that most Jews saw at least some fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy. They're like, surely that was it. Zeus worship and pig blood all over the place where God was supposed to be worshipped. So Jesus understands this, understands that this was a massive deal in the history of Judaism, in the history of the temple. But now Jesus hijacks this exact same phrase, abomination of desolation, and says there's something even bigger coming that will even more fully fulfill 
Daniel's prophecy. Now, did, uh, did the, the raising of a Zeus statue and spreading of pig's blood, did it fill, fulfill Daniel's prophecy? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. But what Jesus now infers is that that historical moment is now foreshadowing something even bigger. And we see this happening in the Bible over and over again. So there's a lot of debate over uh, what the abomination of desolation is going to be that Jesus is referring to. And there are a few historical options that even come to play after Jesus makes this prophecy. All right. So just a few years after this prophecy from Jesus, the Roman emperor Caligula. Again, not around to correct me. Caligula. Thank you. I actually, believe it or not, I practiced this in my office several times and listened to the thing and still couldn't get it right. This guy, right? This guy attempts to resurrect a statue of himself in the temple so the Jews would be forced to worship Caesar. But he was assassinated before he was successful. And the Jews did not have to flee to the mountains, though it might have been a good idea at this point. Later, in AD 70, y'all didn't know you were showing up for history lesson this morning. Later, and, and this is part of the, one of the difficulties of the scripture, is that we're 2,000 years removed. And we read a phrase from Mark 13, and you know what? And, and we're more influenced by Left Behind and Kirk Cameron in Hollywood than we are by the words of scripture or by the actual thing that was going on in their lives. So when Jesus taught this, the disciples knew the terminology, knew the expectations, understood the history because they were living the history. So we have to do the hard work, right, of understanding what this meant for them before we can understand what it means for us. And this is part of reading the Bible, why Christianity has been a religion of teaching for the last 2,000 years, of reading, studying, trying to understand. So later in AD 70, as we discussed a couple weeks ago, the Roman general Titus laid siege on the city of Jerusalem, circled the entire city. He himself enters the temple before having it so completely destroyed as Jesus prophesied that no stone would be laid on top of another. And we talked a few weeks ago about how massive a deal this was because when you're talking about the Temple Mount, you're talking about 35 acres, 12 football fields with columns circling the whole thing. It would take three men holding hands to be around each column. And we were talking about a massive structure, a wonder of the world that this army comes in and levels. Now, some have thought that Titus walking into the temple and then destroying it is what led to the desolation. I mean, it was, it was, a, it was an abomination for anyone other than the high priest once a year to enter the Holy of Holies. And here comes a Roman general, right, entering in and then ravaging, having his way, destroying the whole thing. So perhaps he was partial fulfillment. Perhaps Jesus really is preparing them for that historical moment where Titus comes in, and uh, not the Titus of the Bible, different Titus, <laughs> and, and he brings absolute ruin to the city of Jerusalem. The disciples certainly would have understood these prophecies to be at least partially fulfilled in their lifetime. And people in that day heeded Jesus' words when that dude ended up in the temple and they ran for the mountains. And praise the Lord they did because that's the only thing that kept them alive in that day. 
So absolutely, Jesus' words in this moment should have been listened to for that historical moment. Otherwise, the disciples were going to die in a city surrounded by Roman soldiers. So yes, they, they listened to them. But, but the passage seems to indicate that these historical moments are actually prequels to an even larger moment that will be global. Those days to come that Jesus speaks of here seem to be bigger than even the destruction of the temple in AD 70. Jesus describes those days that the listener should should take very seriously. When they see an abomination standing in the place where only God should stand, They should assume that destruction's coming swiftly. They should flee to the mountains. They should not take anything with them. It will be especially hard for someone pregnant in those days or nursing an infant to get away from the impending danger. It will be especially hard if it's winter. So in those days, as they're fleeing into the mountains, winter would have made it extremely difficult. In one sense, the disciples should really take note here if they want to survive the historical event of A.D. 70. Certainly, there are historical elements But I think that there's something very important to recognize here from Daniel to now Mark and then later to Revelation. I think there's a cyclical nature here that we should recognize. Daniel spoke of this abomination. The kings that Daniel served under constantly, they they constantly tried to set themselves up as the object of worship. Later, Roman Caesars fit the bill perfectly, right? They fit the belt perfectly. You set up a a statue of Zeus. Yeah, there it is again. Man's kingdom trying to set itself up in the place of God. I want to pause here and just recognize something that's true about the world order that's here. Something that John recognizes about the spirit of the antichrists, plural, Christs, plural. 1 John chapter 2, listen to John as he reflects on this This ebb and flow of human history as man tries to set himself up on the throne to be worshipped. 1 John 2, verse 18. Children, it's the last hour. As you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it's the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they'd been with us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they're not of us, but you have been anointed by the Holy One. You all have knowledge. I write to you, not because you don't know the truth, but because you know it, because there's no lie, uh, no lies of the truth. Who's the liar but he who denies Jesus the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and Son. Again, in 1 John chapter 4, verse 2, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. There's something cyclical about the way the bible portrays human history and the impending end of the world if you're a note taker this is what i want you to write down truth number one the spirit of abomination is at work in our world now and this is one of the craziest things to me most of the people that get so crazy caught up on trying to figure out when the antichrist will come 
they're the ones actually watching and giving to the Antichrist on TV. They're the ones falling for the false teachers, making rich, making themselves rich off of their lies. And so they're, they're wanting to know, when's the Antichrist coming? When's the Antichrist? You're tithing to him. He's here. And you're so concerned about when the end's going to come that you're actually wasting your life, not aware that the spirit of the Antichrist is very much real in this world. They fly jets and they steal your money. And they don't profess Christ. The spirit of abomination is the spirit that sets themselves up as the one to be worshipped rather than the true gospel. There's a very real evil in our world and in humanity that seems to be constantly striving against the kingdom of God and for the kingdom of man. And many Roman emperors throughout their history set themselves up in this place. And there are many preachers today that set themselves up in this place. But consider how this played out in many nations over the course of many generations. Uh, there's, there's a spiritual principle here about the human condition. That, that we all are sinful people with the capacity to commit great atrocities and to put ourselves in a place that it doesn't belong. We're not reading this text rightly unless this text drives us to be on guard for the kind of spirit of the Antichrist that is one we can find not only on television, but one we can find in our own hearts. There's a general principle here that we should be on guard for a spirit of abomination that brings desolation to our lives, to the lives of the people around us. There's also a general principle here for Christians who find themselves living in kingdoms when such abominations rise to power. I mean, he says, flee to the mountains. You, you will not be spared in this kind of kingdom. Jesus teaches, speaks to a very real moment where he says, save yourselves, get out. But then verse 19 tells me that Jesus is describing something even bigger. Now, look at verse 19, because this is wild when you really stop and think about it. This is what Jesus speaks about this coming day of an abomination, setting himself up where he shouldn't be, and bringing desolation. Look at verse 19. For in those days, there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of of the creation that God created until now and never will be. Now, now this verse, so up until that point, I'm thinking, okay, maybe all this was just historically fulfilled, right? Kind of like the disciples, you know, maybe the prophecy of Daniel was historically fulfilled uh, in 158 BC. But this verse leads me to believe that whatever Jesus is talking about here is bigger and more dreadful than any previous judgment ever or anyone to follow. This is bigger than the flooding of the whole world in Noah's day. Whatever this is, is bigger than the Noahic flood. Now, I don't know about you, but if you are on the boat in the Noahic flood, I can't think of a bigger tribulation that has ever come on the world. But according to Jesus, in those days there'll be such a tribulation that has not been from the beginning of the creation. This is truth number two. The last day will be accompanied by tribulation led by the abomination. So as bad as Babylon's invasion was, and it was bad, 
grotesque and gruesome, as bad as the siege on Jerusalem was, and it was bad, grotesque and gruesome, as bad as World War II was, there seems to be some kind of tribulation with somebody leading it, which the world has yet to see, a tribulation that will precede the final return of Jesus. Now, Paul picks up on this theme from Jesus' teaching as he prepared. There's lots of questions about this going on in Thessalonica. We studied this in our community groups. And Paul describes the abomination of desolation with different words. The lawless one who will lead the rebellion. Talking about things getting worse in the world. And, and I, I'd much rather let his words parse this out than mine. So look at Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1. Here Paul bringing some explanation to this prophecy. I wish he'd bring some more, but this is what he brings. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1. He says, now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by spirit or spoken word or, or letter seeming to be from us to the effect of the day of the Lord's already come. So don't worry, it hasn't happened yet. Verse 3. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless... The rebellion comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed. The son of destruction. And listen to what he's going to do. Who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship. So that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things, and you know what is restraining him now? So what's keeping this man of lawlessness, the spirit of the Antichrist, from having victory over the world? What's stopping him? You know what's restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. The assumption is that God is the one restraining him. Verse 7, for the mystery of lawlessness, it's already at work. Same thing, right? Spirit of the Antichrist, it's happening everywhere. Look around you. It's already where only he who now restrains it will do so until he's out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed. So there'll be a moment where the ultimate evil, the son of destruction, abomination of desolation, man of lawlessness, whatever you want to call him, antichrist, whatever you want to call him. There'll be a moment where he's revealed and you'll see who this is and what they are. And I love the next verse, or the next phrase. Whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. So Paul fills in some gaps, doesn't he? He fills in some gaps. There's a couple things he affirms. The Antichrist will exalt himself over God. The Antichrist is presently being restrained by God. So do you know why the kingdom of man doesn't have total victory over this country, this city, this world, right now, the restraining hand of a sovereign God, holding back the evil that wants to have its way? That's why we get to sit and worship right now in this moment. It's the restraining hand of a gracious God on all of the wickedness. The Antichrist one day will be revealed on the last day. He will deceive many in the last days 
and then Jesus will destroy the Antichrist by the breath of his mouth on the last day. Now, the way I read 2 Thessalonians in this picture, it's a picture of the world becoming increasingly evil. It's a picture of, of, of a climactic moment where the most uh, concentrated degree of wickedness is wrapped up in an individual who is wreaking havoc on the entire world order. It'll be a moment where it, it, that, that anyone alive in those days, it will be hard to believe that evil is not winning. It will be so bad, it will feel so helpless, it will feel like God has said, have thine own way to the world. And in that moment, where wickedness seems to be its most powerful, the sky will split open and Jesus will breathe on him. And it will be over. Now when that happens, before that moment of breathing upon the most evil one, it appears that there will be a tribulation that will be global. And you can see why many Christians over the course of human history thought that they were in that tribulation. I mean, we don't, we don't think this as modern Americans because we, because we haven't had to experience any kind of tribulation in comparison to the rest of the world, in comparison to the rest of the history of the world. I mean, in the first and second century of Christianity, when Christians were being fed to lions, fed to wild dogs, crucified upside down, wrapped in tar, burnt on stakes in the gardens of emperors to provide lights, lighting for the parties, you not know, think they were thinking, this has got to be it. This is the tribulation. You cannot read the Bible about coming tribulation and not suspect you were living in it. In the 16th centuries, in the 16th century, believers were being drowned, burnt at the stake, beheaded, tortured by wicked popes in a corrupted Roman, corrupted Roman Catholic church. You could have not read your Bible in that moment and not felt, we're in it. We're in it as you're going to your own death just because you wanted to translate the Bible into the people's language. You had to think, this is the tribulation. In the 20th century, believers meeting in secret under Nazi occupation as millions of Jews are being led to the slaughter by a tyrannical reigning lunatic who wanted to establish a new world order. Lord help, I'd have, I'd have been watching the sky every day, <laughs> thinking surely this is the tribulation. And today, right now, as we sit and worship in freedom, there are Christians in Afghanistan and in North Korea. And as they read words of Jesus about a tribulation, they feel that they are living in it. And they turn to a sovereign God for help in their time of need. And Mark chapter 13 is not just a source of debate of when is the tribulation going to happen. It's the place they go to to survive the tribulation they're living in. And you could debate back and forth whether that's the tribulation or the future tribulation. Being burned at the stake is being burned at the stake, whether that's in the first century or the 33rd century. It's a real tribulation that these words were designed to help you make it through. Jesus says, but in those days, there will be such a tribulation has, that has not been from the beginning of creation that God created until now and never will be. And in those days, people will be so desperate that false Christ and false prophets will arise all the more to deceive and lead astray. That's what verse 21 tells us. It's a repetition of what we talked about last week, but it's rep repeated for a reason. 
He says, if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. False Christ, false prophets will arise. They'll perform signs and wonders to lead astray. If possible, the elect be on guard. I've told you all things beforehand. Truth number three, the last days will be accompanied by a great deception. They'll be accompanied by a great deception. Isn't it interesting that the war between good and evil is never just about physical suffering? The war is for what you believe. The war is over who you're going to worship. Notice that the primary warning that Jesus gives is not that just, just you preserve your physical life. That'll come out the wash in eternal life. But what he wants you to preserve is your spiritual and intellectual faith in the right Jesus, not the wrong Jesus. There will be in the last day people claiming to be Jesus, claiming to teach in the name of Jesus to a greater degree than what we see today or what we've ever seen. And this text says they will even do signs and wonders. Now that's really important because Jesus warns against believing someone just because they can do or they can say they can do signs or wonders. There is a sort of supernatural demonic power in the world today and will be in the coming day that will seem miraculous and just because you see or hear something that seems supernatural it does not mean it's on the right side of supernatural it does not mean that it's of God Paul essentially tells the Galatians the same thing in Galatians 1 verse 6 right he says I'm astonished that you so quickly desert were deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ turning to a different gospel not that there is another one but there are some of you who, some of, uh, there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. So they've got a little bit of it right, but they're twisting it, right? They're distorting the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. You should be, you should be so grounded in the gospel of God. And the words that come from God, that if an angel were to appear and preach something differently, you would say, that is not of God. Paul warns Timothy that this, this is why we preach in our churches. This is why this moment's happening. He tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, I charge you in the presence of God and Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead by his appearing and his kingdom, right? How are you supposed to prepare for Jesus coming back? Verse 2, preach the word. Be ready in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but they'll have itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and they'll turn away from listening to truth and wander off into myths. The spirit of abomination is at work in our world. The last days will be accompanied by a great tribulation led by the abomination, and the last days will be accompanied by a great deception. But be encouraged. Truth number four, the last day will be accompanied by a great salvation. Now there's a ray of hope in verse 20, but we'll look at this more in depth next week. But verse 20 says, And if the Lord had not cut short the days, 
So again, there's this picture of a restraining hand. A restraining hand on the, the depth, degree, length of this tribulation that people experience. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. So as those last days of tribulation run their course, the man of lawlessness is unrestrained to do his evil works. The false prophets proclaim their false message. The the people of God flee to the mountains. There will be a group of people who will stand with Christ. They will stand in the fullness of the tribulation. And Jesus calls these people the elect whom God has chosen. And we'll look at this language more next week, but here's a prequel in verse 26. This is what happens in the end. The Son of Man comes in the clouds with great power and glory. He sends out the angels to gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heaven. On the last day, God will reach into the depths of the wickedness and the tribulation and the suffering and the fullness of everything man's kingdom brings to bear on a broken world and God says you are mine and you are mine and you are mine and he saves people out of the depths of it no amount of tribulation no amount of deception no abomination of desolation can stop the eternal purpose of God to save his people here These words about the unchangeable end for those whom God has chosen for themselves, those whom have put saving faith in Jesus. Do not be anxious about the end of the world, Christian. God aims to gather his people. He aims to save his people fully and finally. This has been the plan from the beginning. So this is what I want to do. This is kind of like in conclusion. But just listen, that, that word elect, that word chosen, there's a lot of debate, there's so much debate about the word elect that, that, that you argue about it rather than enjoying it. And so let's not argue about it a minute, let's just enjoy this for a moment. That God, if you're a Christian, and we could debate how all this parses out some other time, but if you're a Christian, the Bible unashamedly says God chose you. He desires you, he loves you, Nothing could stop him from saving you. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. This is what God has done for you and plans to do for you until the end of time. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now, now get this. People are reading these words in the midst of persecution. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he's blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things to him, things in heaven, things on earth. And in him, we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of his glory in him. 
when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, when you believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee, guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. The last day will be accompanied by a great salvation that will look all the more glorious because of the intensity of the tribulation. No one on the last day will say, I'm saved because I was awesome through that tribulation. <laughs> Everyone will be crying out to a God sovereign over history who will then save his people. And Jesus prepares his disciples for both the difficulty that they would have to pass through and the glory they would enjoy on the other side. Mark chapter 13, verse 23, be on guard. I've told you all these things beforehand. Now, one of the questions we will look at next week is simply this. What does it mean to be on guard in light of this? What does it mean to stay awake or be prepared? It's one thing to know this. It's another thing to respond to it. How in the world are we supposed to respond to this picture of the end of the world? Well, I'll close with just one suggestion this morning, and we'll flesh it out more next week. Here's the suggestion. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Jesus speaks all of this beforehand so that you would know that Jesus is Lord of all, even in the midst of tribulation. The tribulations in our life, both small and the great one to come, including this greatest tribulation, it's not a surprise to King Jesus. There are not competing forces of which Jesus has no control. Jesus knows exactly what's going to happen and exactly he's going to overthrow the fullness of evil on the last day. He has a plan and he's inviting you to be a participant. He's unfolding a grand redemptive narrative where he will triumph over every ounce of evil in the world, even your evil heart. And it started with him providing forgiveness to your evil heart by taking the punishment you deserved on a cross, rising again on the third day, and giving you the spirit that would transform your evil heart. So on the last day, you're not on the wrong side of history, you're on the right side of history. You're not a part of the kingdom of man that will be squashed, you're a part of the kingdom of God that will be celebrating that God has won. That is the point of studying the last days, that you might increase your confidence that Jesus wins in the end, and you can endure come what may, because you know who wins in the end. Only by looking to the promises of Jesus and enjoying the presence of Jesus in our lives Will we find comfort to our restless souls as the day draws near? Let's turn our eyes to Jesus together. Let's pray. Father, thank you for showing grace to us as we work through this passage. I pray if there's any way in which I unintentionally misled us from the truth of these words, God. We pray that you would make it clear to us. Help us, help us to understand. Um, but God, more than we want to understand the, the inner workings of what will happen on the last day, Father, we want to be faithful today. We don't want to waste tomorrow or this week. We want to live for Jesus today. So we pray, God, help us now. 
as we consider what you've done for us and we consider what you've promised to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand.